Many years ago, Holly and I were in Memphis, Tennessee, and we were about to see, at the time, one of my favorite bands, a band called Switchfoot, at a small little music hall, and we were getting ready for this band to step on the stage, and I remember this group of teenagers sitting, or standing, a little bit in front of us, and as the stagehands are clearing the stage and preparing the stage for Switchfoot, that the main event, I hear one of these teenagers say something like this to his friend, wouldn't it be horrible if right before Switchfoot stepped on the stage, Jesus came back? <laughs> now, I don't know these young people, n never met them, didn't know where they're from. I'm assuming, based on the fact that they were talking about the return of Jesus, that they probably at least identified as followers of Jesus, as Christians. And in that moment, they're expressing this fear that Jesus would come back before they get to experience this thing that they're really excited about experiencing. Whether they were true Christians or not is something that I cannot say, but I can say that often even genuine followers of Jesus have the same attitude when it comes to the return of Christ. Before we're too hard on those young people, maybe we should ask ourselves this morning, what keeps me from longing for the return of Jesus? Maybe singles in this room, you're longing to experience the gift of marriage first. Or maybe you're longing to enjoy the gift of children. Or maybe if you have young children, you're looking forward to the empty nester days. Jesus, please don't come back until that point, right? Maybe you're hoping to see Switchfoot in concert first. Probably not. Are you hoping to travel to certain places or experience certain things? Or maybe you're just too busy living your life to even really think about the return of Jesus. Whatever it is, my prayer for us this morning is that God would use his word to strengthen our longing for the return of Jesus. If you put your Bible away, I'm going to ask you to open it back up to Matthew 24. If you're our guest here this morning, our normal practice is not to talk about the end of the world every Sunday, but to walk through books of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we find ourselves in Matthew 24, which just happens to be one of the most complicated passages in the New Testament, and it also happens to be a passage where Jesus talks a lot about the end of the world. We're going to be in verses 29 through 35 this morning, the passage that was read earlier, and it will help you immensely if you have a Bible or an app on your lap in front of you, and you can follow along as we study the passage together. Just a little bit of context so we can kind of remember where we are in the story of Matthew's gospel. Of course, it is Tuesday, the week of Jesus' crucifixion. So in just a few days, he'll be celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, he'll be betrayed, and he will be crucified. He's been in and out of the city of Jerusalem every day of Passover week, and on this particular Tuesday, he was teaching in the temple, and then as they're going back to Bethany where they're staying with some friends, the disciples remark on the beautiful view, this incredible temple. 
And Jesus says, don't you know that that temple is going to be destroyed? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. And then the disciples ask this incredibly important question that really frames our understanding of the entire chapter. It's in verse 3, if you want to look there. Uh, As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So those two questions, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And when is the end of the world going to happen? That kind of frames our understanding of this entire chapter. And you might remember I said a couple of weeks ago that uh, this chapter is kind of like a box of tangled up Christmas lights. You've got two strands of prophecy, one about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and the other strand about the end of the world. And Jesus answers both questions, but sometimes it's not easy to tell which question he's answering. Jesus' words in our text this morning mostly but not entirely, focus on the second question, which is, when, Jesus, are you coming back? As we study this passage, we're going to learn something that the Bible consistently teaches us about the return of Christ. It should be our eager expectation and hope. That's the big idea that I hope to communicate to you from God's Word this morning. Jesus' return should be our eager expectation and hope. You might not feel like those young people in that Switchfoot concert, but you need to have an expectation and a longing and a desire for Jesus to return. And one of the things that God uses to increase our desire for his return is his word. So with God's help, we're going to look at five truths to increase our longing for the return of Jesus. Truth number one is that Jesus' return will be soon. Jesus' return will be soon. And don't worry, I'm not setting dates, but I want you to look at the text beginning in verse 29. Immediately. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Now, did you catch what Jesus said? Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, there will appear these cataclysmic signs in the heavens and then Jesus will return. Last week, we looked at verses 15 to 28, which talk, I argued about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's coming back. So, A.D. 70, let me check my notes real quick. That was almost 2,000 years ago. So why does Jesus say in verse 29 that he would return immediately afterwards? There's a few options. First option is what we might call the heretical options. And when we use the word heretical, we're referring to what we call heresy as Christians. And heresy is not just merely uh, a a misunderstanding or a disagreement among Christians. A heresy is to be dead wrong. It's to be so wrong that we would say that's outside the bounds of what it means to be a Christian. 
So there's two heretical options to understanding what Jesus means by immediately in verse 29. Some people say that Jesus was just wrong. He thought he was going to come back immediately after the destruction of the temple. Obviously, he didn't. Obviously, Jesus was wrong. Now, that's a big problem if you believe that Jesus is God. If you believe that Jesus is God, you believe that he knows all things. There's not something that Jesus can be wrong about, so we dismiss that option as heresy. We can't agree with that. Another option, some say, is that Jesus really did return in A.D. 70, and he really did set up the new heavens and the new earth, and guess what? This is it. Ouch. If this is the new heavens and the new earth, I want a refund, don't you? There's so many things that the Bible says about the return of Christ that are so sweet to us and so glorious. We're going to talk about some of those things in a little bit. That it can't possibly be referring to this age. So we reject that as heresy. That's wrong. Absolutely dead wrong. Those are not options for a follower of Jesus. But there are three different options that Christians can hold. In fact, I would suggest that probably within this room, at least two out of these three views are represented. In fact, I know two of them, maybe three, maybe all three. The first one is what's called the futurist option. Uh, the position known as futurism says that verses 15 to 28 aren't talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 at all. So a futurist would look at all of Matthew 24 and say that the whole thing is future. When Jesus talks about the, the great tribulation and the abomination of desolation and the destruction of the temple, he's not talking about that temple in that day, but a future temple that has yet to be built. The problem, I think, with that interpretation is that the disciples are asking about the temple that they see right in front of them. And it seems a little strange that Jesus would be talking about a temple that hasn't even been built yet almost 2,000 years later. And yet, there are plenty of faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians that believe this option. And if you believe this option, you are welcome here at PBC. We love you. You're wrong, but we love you. I'm just teasing. We love you, and you can be a part of this faith family and strongly hold the futurist position. That's okay, because it shouldn't be the type of issue that we have to really, really lock horns and fight over, okay? So that's option number one that's actually a legitimate option. Another option is called the preterist option. A preterist comes from the Latin word meaning past, and the position known as preterism says that verses 29 to 30, our text this morning, is not talking about the return of Christ at all. Now, that might seem strange to you, and yet there are some really strong arguments that th this portion, our text today, is actually referring to Jesus' cataclysmic judgment over the, the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Faithful Bible teachers like R.C. Sproul and many others hold this view. And so they say, well, when Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, there's going to be these signs in the heavens, he's really talking in symbolic language for what's disastrously going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. 
And so all of this is past. Now, these folks do not say that Jesus has come back. They'll look at verses 36 and following, and they'll say, yes, that's talking about the future return of Christ. But our text this morning is talking about something that happened in AD 70. Now, again, this is a position that you can hold and be a faithful member here at PBC. What's essential that you believe is that Jesus is coming back. Now, my concern with the preterist position is that it seems to misunderstand what Jesus says when he talks about every eye seeing him when he returns. A final option is what we can call the spiritual option, and this is my view. And by the way, I'm not calling it that because I think it's more spiritual than yours. Um, It's called the spiritual view sometimes because it looks for a spiritual fulfillment of eschatology, the end times teaching in the Bible, not necessarily always a literal fulfillment. It's also sometimes called idealism, although it's not very idealistic. A few weeks ago when I first mentioned this position, my son Jonah gently rebuked me after the service because I did not share any faithful Bible teachers that held this view. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard me, here's some people that hold this view, here's some people that hold this view, and then I said, I'm the one that holds this view, and then moved on. He said, well, you don't count, Dad. So who else holds that view? And I told him some of my friends that hold it, and he said, they don't count either. Somebody that writes books or speaks in conferences. So somebody that you might have heard of, uh, people that hold this view would include Kevin DeYoung, J.I. Packer, Mark Dever, and most of the reformers, like Martin Luther, John Calvin, etc. Okay, so how does this view understand the word immediately in verse 29? How do I understand it? Well, look at the text really carefully. Jesus says, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, here's the question. What does Jesus mean? Which days is he talking about when he says those days? Is he talking about the days when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70? I don't think so. I think he's referring to those days in verse 22. So look at verse 22. Jesus says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If you remember this last Sunday when we looked at that passage I argued that verse 22 is not referring to the days of the destruction of the temple, but it's referring to the entire period of the church. So why do you say that? Because when Jesus says no human being would be saved, that suggests not just no human living in Jerusalem in AD 70, but no human anywhere. And when Jesus says for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short, it suggests something bigger than merely the sake of the elect living in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So I I think verse 22 is talking about the entire age of the church when God's people will go through tribulation that's typified by the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So in other words, Jesus says when that age is over, immediately after that, the Son of Man will return. So immediately after this age of the church, this great period of great tribulation that all of us are walking through, when that ends, 
Jesus will return. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Now, whichever one of those views you hold, as long as you're not holding number one, that's crossed out. That one's not allowed. But the other three, as long as you're holding one of those views, whatever one you hold, your eager expectation and hope must be to see Jesus because you really believe that he's coming soon. Jesus explicitly says that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. He says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now again, you see that word soon, and you wonder, it's been 2,000 years, Jesus. What does soon mean? I think it's best not to think about the word soon chronologically, but to think about it theologically. Here's what I mean. Instead of telling us something about the time of his return, something that Jesus says no man knows, Jesus is trying to teach us something about the nature of his return. I think what Jesus means when he says soon is that there's no major pit stop left on God's redemptive calendar before Christ returns. Think about it like this. If I'm on a long road trip with our kiddos, one on vacation somewhere, we're driving home, we got 9, 10, 15 hours, however long, and they ask, Dad, are we there yet? You know, you've heard that before, parents. Um, I don't say soon for a while. I'm not going to say we're going to be there soon until we're in the home stretch. Once we make our last stop for gas, once we make our last bathroom break stop, all the pit stops are over. Now I'll say we're going to be there soon. Now, that still might be one, two, three hours away from home, but we're in the home stretch now. And for a kid, that might feel like an eternity. In the same way for us, 2,000 years feels like forever. But God says, don't count days like I count days. Like, I don't count days the way you count days. What you count as a, as a day is a thousand years, or a thousand years for me is like a day. I think that's what the Bible means when it says Jesus is coming soon. We're in the home stretch now. There's no more major stops along the way. There's no more major prophecies that must be fulfilled before Christ can return. Soon could mean next decade. Or soon could mean next week. So the question, Christian, is are you eagerly expecting and hoping for the return of Christ? Or do you look at it as this kind of distant, far-off sort of thing that really isn't going to have anything to do with you so you don't need to worry about it? I think it will help us to long for the return of Christ if we really believe that Jesus' return will be soon. Second truth this morning we want to look at about the return of Christ is that Jesus' return will be seen. His return will be soon, and his return will be seen. Look again at verses 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then, look at this, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus says his return 
will immediately be preceded by these cataclysmic signs in the heavens. I think it's probably best for us not to try to figure out what those signs mean, but just to understand that whatever it means, it's gonna be something that you can't miss. It's an unmissable sort of thing. Everybody will see him. The text says all the tribes of the earth will see him. The idea that Jesus' return is a public event that the world will see is all over the New Testament. Uh, Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Or in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, an angel says to the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will be seen. Now, immediately we notice a potential problem with this teaching that perhaps many of you are familiar with. It was popularized in a series of novels called Left Behind. It's not where it started, but this idea that there's some sort of of secret rapture where Jesus takes away his people and then later comes back where everyone sees him. I'm going to suggest to you that's not what the scriptures teach. When Jesus returns, every eye will see him. Uh, Some people go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to defend this position. Listen to what it says in verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, if you look carefully at those verses, I don't think they're talking about a secret rapture at all. Notice Paul mentions several things that will happen when Jesus returns for his people. There's an angel, there's a trumpet, and then Jesus rescues, right? Look at verse 31 in Matthew 24. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24 are referring to the same event when Jesus will return and every eye will see him and his people will be rescued. Now, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Christians in the room. You will not miss the return of Jesus. You're not going to wake up one morning and find a pair of folded clothes on a bench in your house and think that you missed the rapture. Your spouse got taken, but not you. It's not going to happen. Why? Because when he returns, every eye will see him. You're not going to miss it, Christian. If you belong to Jesus, you will see his face. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me give you a warning. I think because of things like the Left Behind novels and other things that that some people that are familiar with Christianity but don't know Jesus might think that they're going to get some sort of second chance 
You know, all, all the Christians are all of a sudden going to be gone. And now I know it must be true. I guess I better repent and believe now. Dear friend, you must repent and believe now, not then. There's not coming some second chance where you get another opportunity. When Jesus returns, that's the end. So I would plead with you, dear friend, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus today while you have time. Jesus' return will be seen. If you don't belong to Jesus, then Jesus' return for you will be sorrowful. That's our third lesson this morning from the text. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why are they going to mourn? Doesn't the hymn say, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. By the way, we sing that song around Christmas time, but if you look at the lyrics very carefully, it's quite clear that it was written to celebrate the return of Jesus. And so next Sunday, we're actually going to sing that song as we continue to walk through Matthew 24 together. Don't be weirded out. We're singing Christmas songs, you know, in whatever month it is. No, the whole point is this is about the return of Jesus. And the song says joy to the world. Why does the text say that the tribes of the earth will mourn? Those who will not repent and believe in Christ now will mourn when they see him on that day. The reason is clearly taught in John's vision of the return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verses 11 and through 16. John, in his vision, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Dear friend, here's what that means. At Jesus' first coming, he appeared as a humble baby. In his second coming, he will appear as a conquering king. At his first coming, he rode into Jerusalem, you remember, riding a donkey, offering peace. When he returns, he will be riding a war horse. At his first coming, Jesus was pierced with nails and a spear. In his second coming, Jesus will pierce with a sword. At his first coming, Jesus was beaten with reeds. At his second coming, Jesus will return wielding a rod of iron. At his first coming, Jesus shed his blood to save his people. In his second coming, he will shed the blood of all who reject him. Dear friend, I do not say that to scare you or to threaten you into anything, but simply to plead with you to look to Jesus and be saved so that you will not weep when you see him. Christian, we can trust 
that justice is coming when Jesus returns. We don't have to fight for it in our own strength now. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, hear me clearly, there will quite literally be hell to pay if you will not repent and believe before he returns. What do you need to do? You need to believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of Christianity, the gospel. The heart of Christianity is not these debates about the end of the world. The heart of of Christianity, what every member here agrees with, is the good news of the gospel. That God created this world and everything in it, and humanity, starting with our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, and as a result, the curse of sin spread to the entire human race. When Adam fell, all of us fell. And yet God, in his kindness, sent his beloved son, Jesus the Christ, to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death and rise from the dead so that whoever turns from their sins and trusts in him can have eternal life. Dear friend, dear young person, is that where your faith lies? If your faith is in anything else, if you're trusting in your good works, your church attendance, your giving, your kindness, being better than this or that person, if you're trusting in anything else but Christ, you will weep when he returns because then it will be too late. But if your faith is in Christ, Jesus' return for you will be sweet. That's our fourth truth this morning. Jesus' return will be sweet. In the world of international adoptions, families sometimes talk about a gotcha trip. It's the trip mom and dad take to another country to bring their chosen child home. Our family's gotcha trip was in February 2021 when we traveled to Bogota, Colombia to gather our beloved son Ezekiel and bring him home. At the time, Ziki didn't really understand why these two strangers were taking him and bringing him on an airplane, and he didn't understand why that was a good thing, but it was. He was definitely scared and definitely confused, but he didn't need to be. Why? Because we were bringing him home. I I think the return of Jesus is like the Trinity's gotcha trip. Look at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What's that verse mean? The word elect just means chosen. It's referring to the people of God. When Jesus says the chosen, his people, are gathered from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, he's simply saying that he's going to return to gather all of his people. Christian, there's not going to be a place where Jesus forgets to get you. There's no cave that you can hide where he won't find you. He's going to gather all of his people, and all of them are coming home. Now, just like our little Zeke, when we brought him home, I know Christians, maybe even many of you, we get scared and confused when we think about the end of the world. But we don't need to be. The New Testament is filled with encouragement for God's people about Jesus' return. Do you know, often, often, it's all over the New Testament. When the Bible wants to encourage struggling Christians, you know what it often talks about? 
the return of Christ. When Jesus returns, you will see him face to face. You will look into the eyes of someone who knows you to your core and loves you anyways. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, your faith will be made sight. No more doubting. You'll know that the stories are true and you'll never doubt again. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, your obedience will be rewarded. How many times, Christian, have you tried to do the right thing and feel like you get punished for it? Why do I even try? When Jesus returns, he will reward his people. Every sacrifice, every tear, every pain, all of it will be worth it. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, injustice will end. We see so much evil in our world, and it seems like the wicked often get away with it. When Jesus returns, no one will get away with it. Every wrong will be made right. Every sad thing will come untrue. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, you'll never be afraid again. The things that frighten you will be swallowed up forever. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, every tear will be wiped away. No more pain, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more caskets, no more cancer, no more divorces, no more breakups, no more arguments. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, there will be no more abortions. There will be no more elections, praise God. There will be no more racism, no more shootings, no more child abuse, no more fires, no more hurricanes, no more pandemics, no more corruption, no more murder, no more war. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, you will be reunited with all the Christians who have gone before you, those who have led you to the Lord, those who discipled you, your parents that told you the good news, pastors, teachers, friends, grandparents, all those painful funerals when you said goodbye to fellow Christians, they'll be just a blur when Jesus returns. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, you'll be free from sin. No more envy, no more pride, no more self-loathing, no more lust. For the first time in your life, you can enjoy the simplest of pleasures without a hint of sin. Don't you want to see him? When Jesus returns, Satan and his minions will be destroyed. He will never accuse you again. He will never tempt you again. He will never wreck another family. He will never split another church. He will never kill another marriage. He will never crush another spirit. He will never tell another lie. He will never tempt another soul. He will never steal another ounce of joy. Don't you want to see him? And when Jesus returns, Christian, you will see the king in all of his beauty you will see something far more precious and glorious than you can ever imagine. Don't you want to see him? That is what awaits us who belong to this Jesus. If you belong to him, his return will be sweet. Perhaps if we're honest, 
Christian, we don't think about the sweetness of Jesus' return as much as we should because we struggle sometimes believing, really believing that it's true. If that's you, consider one final truth about the return of Jesus. Number five, Jesus' followers can be sure. Jesus' followers can be sure. Remember again, I said that Matthew 24 is a little bit like a box of tangled up Christmas lights. Well, now we're gonna handle another one of those tangled up sections where we're not always sure if Jesus is talking about his second coming or what happened in A.D. 70. Look with me at verses 32 through 34. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So once again, we're forced with a question. Is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple or the return of Christ? I'm going to suggest four reasons why I think in verses 32 through 34, Jesus is probably talking about A.D. 70. First, uh, notice he says to his disciples, when you see, when you see. It's, it's possible, but hard to imagine Jesus referring to anybody but the physical disciples right in front of him, right there on the mountain. He's saying, Peter, James, John, everybody else, when you guys see these things, the abomination of desolation, when you see those things, something significant is about to happen. Notice also that he says, when you see these things. In the original language, it's the exact same word in Matthew 24 when the disciples ask, when will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple. Third, notice that Jesus says, when you see these things, he is near at the very gates. Who is the he that Jesus is referring to in verse 33? Many of us probably assume that it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is near. And what are the gates? Many of us probably just assume that it's a metaphor for someone being nearby. But what if the he is actually referring to Titus? And what if the gates are a reference to the actual literal gates of Jerusalem that Titus literally entered when he destroyed the temple in A.D. 70? Most important for my belief that this is referring to A.D. 70 is when Jesus says this generation, all this will happen before this generation passes away. Before 40 years had passed, before a generation had passed, the temple would be destroyed just exactly as Jesus said. And just like I told you, I think last week, this is one of those areas where You know, I think that's what it means. I'm not super confident. If you put a gun in my head and say, what is 32 to 34 talking about? I'm going to say, what do you want it to be talking about? I'll just tell you that. This is an area where Christians can agree to disagree and love one another and serve one another in the church family. We don't need to divide over this. Here's what we do agree on and must cling to. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. I think in verses 32 to 34, Jesus brings up the temple again to say to his people, listen, you're gonna see in your lifetime something that I want you to remember so that 
you trust me when you're unsure about when I'm going to return. Jesus intends for his followers to have rock-solid assurance that he will return. By the way, when Jesus says that heaven will pass away, he's not referring to heaven the way we usually use the term. He's not saying that heaven is going to end someday. Uh, when, when you, often when you see the Bible talk about the heavens and the earth, like in Genesis 1-1, it's referring to our planet and the universe, outer space, the stars, the sun, the moon. All of that is going to pass away. It's going to be removed and changed like one changes a garment we heard in the Psalms already this morning. This entire universe is going to be undone and remade and all who belong to Jesus will live there forever. Christian, you can be sure of that because so much of what Jesus has promised has already come true. If I'm honest with you, I kind of agreed with those teenagers when they said what they did about the Switchfoot concert. I, I never would have said it out loud, but there was a part of me that was a little bit more excited about a band than the appearance of Jesus. I too am prone to wander. I too sometimes allow my eager expectation and hope to get wrapped up in things that are much smaller than Jesus. But hear me, Christian, hear me. If you belong to Jesus, he is still coming to bring you home even if you don't long for him like you should. Many of you remember that Sunday in March 2021 when we walked into the gym as a family of seven. Our church got a little more diverse that Sunday, didn't it? <laughs> what if we walked into those doors that morning and Ezekiel wouldn't, wasn't with us? What if you approached me and you said, Hobson, you, know, you all went to Columbia to get Zeke. We saw all your videos. We've been praying for you. Where is he? And what if I said to you, you know, he just wasn't ready to come home yet. I hope, if something like that were to happen, that you would remove me as your pastor. I'm being 100% serious. Why? Because you don't make plans to adopt someone, pay the price to adopt someone, and fail to bring them home. That's an abomination. That's demonic. That's evil. If that's true for an earthly father, is that much more true for our heavenly father? Christian, you were not saved because God knew you'd be particularly good at longing for the return of Jesus. You are not kept saved because you're good at this. You are saved and kept by grace alone. When that really sinks in, don't you want to see him? On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing of sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Would you pray with me? Father, we... Thank you 
for this great salvation. That you did not adopt us because we were good, but because Jesus is good. That you did not invite us into your family because we would be particularly great at longing for your return. But out of sheer grace. May that message sink deep into our core this morning. And may it stir in us a deeper longing to see you than we've ever had before. And for our friends gathered with us this morning that don't know you, may now be the moment that they cry out to you in saving faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.